really excited today. We're beginning a new series, and I always get excited about beginning a new series, but I'm especially excited about this one. Um, this idea of unconventional wisdom has been something that's been knocking around in my head and heart for about a little over a year as I was trying to figure out what a series around that would look like. And so today, um, just to kind of lay out what's going to happen today, oh, I'm sorry, our high schooler, middle schoolers, you guys are free, free to go. Um, I always think I need to let them go, and then I forget. Um, so... Uh, What's going to happen today is I just want to do an introduction to the idea of unconventional wisdom. Um, And then I'm going to do a little bit later in the talk, we'll we'll go through what each week coming up is going to be about. But I just want to lay the groundwork today. And I'm a bit of a word nerd. Do we have any other word nerds in the room? You just love words. You you get a weird amount of joy in studying words. Um, So I was looking into the phrase conventional wisdom, because if you're going to talk about unconventional wisdom, you have to know what conventional wisdom is. And what I found out is the term got used by a couple people in the 1800s, but it was really in the late 1950s in a book called The Affluent Society by John Kenneth Galbraith, where this phrase becomes uh, part of the vernacular, part of our language. And here's what he said in this book. It will be convenient to have a name for the ideas which are esteemed at any time for their acceptability. And it should be a term that emphasizes this predictability. I shall refer to these ideas henceforth, and you have to take him seriously because he said henceforth. Like when somebody breaks out the henceforth, you know they know what they're talking about. It shall be referred to henceforth as conventional wisdom. So if you think about wisdom, wisdom is essentially about how to live your life. Like when you have an issue and you're like, I need some wisdom, what you're saying is I need some guidance about how to live my life. So that's what wisdom is. Conventional wisdom is sort of what everybody knows. It's that shared body of wisdom and knowledge that exists within a society, within a community, within a family. It's the stuff you don't even really have to say. Everybody typically takes it for granted, right? Like that's just what it is. It's conventional wisdom. Another way to think about it is um, it's your lens. So if you wear glasses or contacts, I've got contacts in right now. Um, It's the lens you look through. And when my contacts work properly and when your glasses work properly, you don't even know they're there, right? You just sort of look through them, and your world uh, is seen behind those lenses. That's sort of what conventional wisdom is. It's the lens through which you see everything and everyone in the world. Um, So when you think about conventional wisdom, I don't know if anything pops in your mind, but I did some research, and here are some things that used to be accepted. It's what everybody knew at the time to be exactly how things were. Did you know at one point in time, that everybody assumed that the earth was flat. Did you know this? How many of you assumed this at one point? Right, okay, so it didn't stick around that long, right? Uh, We've replaced that, but at one point, everybody thought the earth was flat, and if you just keep going and sailing, you're eventually going to go off the edge into some pit of monsters or something, right? That was the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom was that we live in a geocentric solar system, which means that we live in a solar system where the earth is at the center, and everything, like the sun, goes around the earth. So when we talk about the sun setting, that is an old-school way of saying the earth is at the center, and the sun is moving around the earth. Now, people didn't want to lose this worldview because some of the most horrible Bible stories in the Bible depend on it, right? Like there's this story, uh, I think, in the book of Joshua where um, God makes the sun stand still so they can kill more people. What? Yes, It's in there. And people, religious people, Christian people, did not want to let go of that that idea and come to terms with the fact that, no, actually the sun is at the center and we all 
revolve around it. In the 1940s and 50s, if you were to talk to a doctor or consulted a baby book, what you would find out is they recommended that pregnant women smoke up to four cigarettes a day for the baby's health. Four. This is a doctor saying, hey, yeah, I think smoking four a day is a good call. You know that they used to treat everything with mercury? Don't do that. <clears throat> Please, do not do that. It's very, very bad for you. Will not end well. Uh, and this was interesting, too. They used to use, I woke up with a cough this morning, and uh, they used to use heroin as a cough suppressant. Uh, I did not today. I just feel like I need to, to name that with you right now. That <clears throat> I have not today done that. Here's the thing about conventional wisdom. It's what everybody knows. It's what everybody assumes to be the way the world works and how things are. And what has been proven time and time again is that conventional wisdom can and often is absolutely flat wrong. Everybody can accept it. Everybody can think it's the way the world works. Everybody can think it's how things should be. And in reality, it's just not how things really are. It's not how things work at their best. It's not how people thrive, right? So, uh, and I wondered about the Bible, because the Bible's full of things that everybody knows, right, that we take for granted as conventional wisdom. But what's really interesting is if you dive into the teaching of Jesus, what you'll discover is that Jesus was a subversive teacher of unconventional wisdom. How many of you have ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, I mean, just to be totally honest, I was in a master's level class uh, once, and the professor wasn't a Christian, and he was... Uh, enamored that I was a pastor and he liked me, like he hadn't had that experience before, which I took as a compliment. Um, and he asked me, if you had to throw the whole Bible away and you could only keep a section, what would you keep? And I was like, well, I would keep the Sermon on the Mount, or at least most of it. I would keep the Sermon on the Mount because I think there's a beautiful sort of something Jesus is doing there that is bucking the system a bit. And so uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has several things we could look at and we'll, we'll pop in and out, but there's one particular text that when I thought of it, I immediately thought, number one, this text has been grossly misunderstood in its history, and number two, this is a beautiful example of Jesus doing the subversive, countercultural, um, unconventional wisdom. So here, here's the text. This is, toward the end, Jesus is starting to wind down the sermon. People are in the mode of what's for lunch, like you know where we're going to be in about 20 minutes, like that's where, that's where they are here. And here's what Jesus says to them, go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide, so many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road difficult, so few people find it. Anybody heard this before? Yeah, I, I grew up hearing this all the time in sermons. And when I would hear this text read, um, it was read differently because people would make an assumption based on conventional wisdom around how the world works, how God works, and how theology works. And here's how the, the text really would often be read. Next slide. Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to hell is broad and the road wide. So many people enter through it because everybody wants to go there. Um, but, the, <laughs> but, but the gate that leads to heaven is narrow and the road difficult, so few people find it. How many of you, that's the reading, right? This would often be followed with the question, if you were to die tonight... Do you know for sure where you would go? Probably in a coroner's van is what, I, like now, that's what I would answer. But back then, like you had to have some sort of afterlife-related answer. Do you know for sure? You get a punch out right now, heaven or hell, which will it be, 
right? And that is a reading of this text. It's not the words Jesus uses. And it is a reading on this text based on a belief that the entirety of faith and the human experience is to leave this life for another one somewhere else. And that's actually the farthest thing from what Jesus is teaching. I I would argue that this particular text is 110% about this life, and it's actually 110% about a situation that the Jesus communities were dealing with around the time it was written. And so I want to dive in, and you may be wondering, like, why are we going to go? Yeah, we're going to go through some history. I want you to see what Jesus is doing here and how he's actually calling people to an alternative kind of wisdom. And one of the most important things to know about the Gospels is that they were written, the earliest one was written some 40 years after Jesus' life. So we have some dates there. The Gospel of Mark was the first, we believe, was the first Gospel written uh, sometime in the 70s, early 70s, likely after uh, a specific event that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, Matthew came along in the 80s, then John in the 90s. And some, the Gospel of Luke is confusing to people. Some people date it as early as 80. Most people date it as late as the 110s. I tend to lean toward the late date. I thought you'd want to know. That's where I kind of, that's where I land on the subject. I think Luke's a later text. Um, and what is interesting is what happened around this time in history. What happened around this time in history, around the year 70, was that the Jewish people were currently being occupied by the Romans. And they decided that they were done being uh, oppressed by the empire, and they decided to launch a revolt that turned into the first Roman and Jewish war. This war uh, began to look really good for uh, the Jewish rebels, and eventually it turned out to be really, really bad for them. When Rome finally came in, uh, they put a siege around the city of Jerusalem, they tore down the walls, they razed the city, and they tore down the temple. And the only thing left now is the Western Wall, um, where people, it's a holy site today. So around the time that the Gospels were being written, the people were likely living, either for Mark, uh, right before or right after this cataclysmic event. And to put words on what this event would have been for those people then and there, we we don't even have language. It would be like a million 9-11s, right? This is not just a blow against economics. This is not just an assault on their humanity. It's also an assault on their religion because in the ancient world, you can't separate all those things. They were much more integrated people than we are today, uh, to their credit. And so you, you really couldn't separate all that out. So it was if, and you had this sort of belief that you had a temple for your God and your God would protect you. And so imagine that happens and everything you thought you knew is out the window. And imagine you're trying to make sense of why that happened. Why were we conquered? Why was our city destroyed? Why was our sacred space um, blasphemed. Why, 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 why? And the stories of Jesus emerge in that context. So I want to offer a a little bit of a different reading on this text than uh, the one that we read earlier. This is not a text about where you're going to spend eternity. This is a text Jesus is speaking to people in his day who would have gotten absolutely what he's arguing for. Let's throw this up there. Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide, so many enter through it, but the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road difficult, few people find it. I think it's important to note, first of all, that he doesn't say the narrow mind, he says the narrow way. Two different things, right? But let's imagine this. What if Jesus is saying the broad way is the belief that we can kill our way 
to liberation. The broad way that leads to destruction is when we decide to pick up swords and start hacking at Romans. That's the broad way, right? Because in Jesus' own time, in the 20s and 30s, there was a growing sentiment uh, of a group of people who would eventually be called the Zealots, who sort of instigated this conflict. There was a growing sentiment, even among some of Jesus' own disciples, that we can kill our way to freedom. That all we've got to do is get more of us than them and be willing to fight dirtier than they'll fight, which you can't do against the Roman Empire. All we've got to do is somehow kill more of them than they kill of us and we'll be at peace. And I think Jesus is saying, if you choose the broad path, which is where everybody's wanting to go, where we're going to throw off our oppressors and we're going to fight, 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 it will lead to destruction, period. Jesus is calling that. (laughs) And it doesn't actually... um, What Jesus is doing here, he's actually warning them. He's saying, don't do this. Don't take the broad path. Because the broad path is essentially the path that we seem to think is of least resistance when actually you're going to run into a brick wall. What would the narrow way be? And this is where it gets really difficult. What if the narrow way was loving your enemy? What if the narrow way was finding a way to resist the brutality of the empire to refuse to be dehumanized, but not stoop to their level. How many of you have ever been in a conflict that ended with some sort of the phrase, I know you are, but what am I? How many of you have ever been in a back and forth with somebody that it just got worse and worse and worse and escalated farther and farther and farther until somebody says the thing that unravels everything, right? How many of you have ever been in a fist fight before? What happens in a fist fight? Somebody throws a punch, the punch is returned, and then the person who started it goes, cool, we're even. No, it's about who can get the last punch, right? And so I think Jesus is arguing, this will never end. What if we tried something nobody's doing? What if we tried to find a way to love our enemies? What if we tried to find a way to resist them, but not in the way they're accustomed to? They, they, they are accustomed to fighting. What if we flip the script? And so he gives them teaching about how to do this. And he says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, give them your left cheek as well. And I actually heard somebody do a sermon on this saying, adding on to the words, and what Jesus didn't say, though, was you couldn't punch him after the second slap. I think you're missing the spirit of Jesus, if that's where you're going to go with that. But in the ancient world, uh, to slap somebody on the right cheek, you would only use your right hand. And if you're going to slap somebody on the right cheek, you're always going to do it with the back of your hand, which in the ancient world is how you treated somebody who was beneath you. So Jesus says, let's imagine a Roman soldier comes up to you and they backhand you. Give them your other cheek as well. Because if you give them your left cheek, now what do they have to do? They have to hit you as an equal. And the goal there is not to get yourself beat up. The goal there is to give the person an opportunity to realize what they're doing and to be transformed. When you see the pain you're causing another human being, when you look into their eyes and you can see the anguish that you are creating for them, Maybe, just maybe, you'll back away. Maybe, just maybe, you'll have a change of heart. Because here's the thing. The the Jesus story is not interested in retribution. When we think of justice in this country, we think of retribution. Let's give them what they've earned, right? And we set up private prisons that become a big business, all based on the idea of we're just going to give people what they deserve. And what happens is we create this loop of people who have been sent to prison and they get out and they've had no help, no training, nothing, and they go back and it's an endless cycle and it's an unjust system. 
And what Jesus is arguing is, what if we had a better way? What if we had restorative justice? What if we actually, wait for it, cared about the people who are harming us enough to want them to change? Not to get rid of them, not to kill them off, but to see them liberated from their hate. That is a tall task. He goes on to say, if somebody wants to take your coat, give them your undercloak as well, which in Jesus' day would mean you would be stark naked. But in Jesus' day, the person who saw the nudity was the one who felt shame, not the person who was naked. And so imagine you're in a courtroom and somebody's suing you and you have nothing to give them so they want your coat that you sleep in at night to keep warm. And you're like, you want my coat? Have it all. And they've, there you are, bare naked in the courtroom in front of everybody, and they begin to realize, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I don't need their coat or cloak. I've got more than... Do you see what Jesus is doing here? And, and it's this unconventional response to dehumanization and oppression, saying don't become like the empire to defeat the empire. Don't become a monster to defeat a monster. You actually have another power. It's what Gandhi called soul force, right? It's this energy of love that is absolutely transformative. Here's some other stuff Jesus said. How many of you have heard of the Beatitudes before? All right, we're going to put those up there. Here's the Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are the poor. Uh, Matthew says in spirit, Luke just says the poor. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for justice, the merciful, compassionate, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Now, the way we've tended to read those is if they're a prescription. If you want to be where God wants you to be, you need to aim for those categories. How many of you today would like to be persecuted? We have a group of people ready. Um, They're just going to start persecuting you, whatever that looks like for you. I don't know. Right? What about people who are poor or even poor in spirit? Do you know what that's talking about? One translation I read called it this. Blessed are the spiritual zeros and losers. The people who can't get it together. The people who want so badly to do the right. It's sort of like what Paul says in Romans, I believe, where he says, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. Is that anybody else's story? Right? Are you supposed to aim, like, today I want to be a loser for God? Like, no. What about mourning? Should you go around looking for reasons to be grieving? And if they aren't there, you create them? No, should you go around looking for reasons to need justice? Like, I don't hunger and thirst for justice enough, so I need to make some bad things happen in my life so I can... These are not prescriptions. When you hear them this way, the word blessed here, think of it like this. God is with you. God's for you. God's on your side. If you're here today and you're poor, you're poor in spirit, feel like you can't get it together, feel like you can't put together a good run, God's with you. God's on your side. If you're here today and you're mourning, you're grieving, God is with you. God is on your side. Today, if you're here and you're meek, and think about meek, you know, when you think about the ladder of society, the meek people are the ones that the ladder sits on. They're not even on the ladder. They're humble, they're quiet, they don't want to hurt anyone, they just want to live and share and the meek who typically get run over, you're going to inherit the earth and God is with you and God is on your side. Those of you who have been treated unjustly, the God of justice is with you, for you, and on your side. Those of you who continually pour yourselves out in mercy and compassion, can we all just be honest? When you really try to be a compassionate person, it can be tough, can't it? 
You can be taken, taken advantage of. It can be a hard road. And when you seek to pour yourself out in that way, God is with you. God is on your side. There's something beautiful. Jesus isn't saying, hey, everybody, come to one of these categories if you want to get in. He's saying there are a group of people who are traditionally thought of as left out. They've been brushed to the side. Nobody wants to touch them. Nobody wants to deal with them. Nobody want... And what Jesus is announcing, that if you want to find God, go to those places and people. Places where people have been oppressed, where they've been crushed down, where their voices are not heard. Go to those places, and what you'll find is that God is actually on the side of the people who've been crushed by the system, not the system, which was an absolutely revolutionary idea, an unconventional idea in the ancient world. The thought was always that God is on the side of the powerful, right? Because God puts them into office, and God supports them. And if they win, God has to be, no, 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 no. The story of the Bible is a story of a God who hears the cry of the oppressed and works against the oppressor. And Jesus is inviting us to that unconventional wisdom. How about this one? Jesus says that if you want to be first, you have to be last. And that the people who are first right now will eventually be last. How many of you are excited about that? Like, can you imagine if people practice this the day after Thanksgiving? Like, they got in line at 2 o'clock the Wednesday before, and been there like a week, no shower, no good meal, and they're, they're waiting in line for a big screen TV, and they're like, you know what Jesus said? I'm going to the back of the line. What would happen to them? They would not get the TV. And all of that would be for naught. And yet Jesus seems to argue that right now we live in a world where um, the most important thing is status. The most important thing is being seen, being first, being important, winning. Sound familiar? And that when you are in that mode, and that is your reason for existing and how you're operating in the world, you are actually already last. Jesus goes on to say, you, you want to save your life? Lose it. What? Lose it. And I don't think he means lose it as in get rid of it. I think what he means is lose control. Realize that you're holding on so tightly to something, and as you're doing it, you're actually missing the joy of it to begin with. Give your life away in joy and service and compassion and generosity to other people, and what you will find is life bigger and more full and abundant than you could ever possibly imagine. I mean, this teaching of Jesus, it was unconventional then, and it is unconventional now. And it isn't sexy, and no wonder the path is narrow. How many people want to sign up for that? Like if somebody was announcing, hey, come to the Spiritual Losers Club, Jesus is there. We don't want anybody to think we're spiritual losers. We pretend to be perfect all the time. What's all this work been for? There's something beautiful about what Jesus is doing. Jesus calls us to be gentle in a violent world, actively compassionate in an indifferent world, generous in a world that operates out of scarcity, and to be ever-expanding inclusive in a world that operates on VIP status. That is the unconventional path of Jesus. It is definitely not a narrow mind. You can actually make an argument that the narrow mind is what's in the broad path. But is in this ever-expanding, generous, compassionate, good, narrow way, which is difficult. Loving your enemies is difficult. I mean, you ever just want to punch people? Can we all just agree that there are moments? We're not saying we act on them. But aren't there moments where you just want to be able to get them back? 
to just tell them off, to put them in their place. And there's a way to have boundaries and to assert your dignity like Jesus talks about. But this is a hard path. Loving your enemy is never going to be easy. Seeing your enemy as a beloved child of God is never going to be easy. That's why very few people take that path. And yet Jesus' argument is, that is the path that leads to life. And so this series, we're going to continue this idea of unconventional wisdom. And we're going to look at several phrases that we use a lot in our culture and and our uh, communities uh, and our families. And we're going to sort of deconstruct them a bit and think about what may actually be the wisdom uh, there. So next Sunday, we're going to begin with God won't put more on you than you can handle. Um, So hopefully God won't put more than you can handle this week and you can be here next Sunday. Next Sunday. Um, uh, Everything happens for a reason. How many of you have heard that one before? Yeah. Um, God helps those who help themselves. The Bible clearly says, um, don't mix politics and religion. Um, because I like living in a powder keg and giving off sparks, apparently. Like, that's one of those topics. Uh, and then, love conquers all. Um, that's a phrase we use a lot. And I think, actually, there's something else going on there, and we need to explore it. Um, so here's the, the sort of where I'm going to leave us today and what I want to invite us to. I want to invite us to try over the next seven days to become aware of our lens. And it's hard to do because you don't even know it's there, right? When somebody asks you, what's your worldview? I bet your first thought like mine would be the right one. And we don't realize we have one, right? It's why people can say, I'm not giving you my opinion, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Because they aren't aware of their worldview. So what if we were to pay attention to the things that happened to us this week? The things we think when we meet a certain person or go through a certain experience or make a certain assumption about a group of people. What if we were to allow that little thing there to go, oh, a little alarm to go off. Why did I say that? Why do I think that? Why is that my first response? Um, What if we were to try to become aware of the thing we assume, the things we assume, the things that everybody knows, and yet in some way they've rang hollow for us and they haven't, they promised life and they didn't give it to us. So this week, let, let's, let's do some internal work and let's open ourselves up to discovering maybe the things about us we don't even know. We have these blinders on we're not even paying attention to and they're there and they're real and what if we were to open ourselves up to that? And then we'll come together next Sunday and we're going to talk about, is it really true that God won't put more on you than you can handle? And is that even good news? Uh, because God's involved and why is God heaping things on people to begin with? So... Um, next week, we're going to end there. We're going to begin there as we sort of walk through some of these phrases that have really, in a lot of people's lives, have come from well-meaning people who have actually wounded them in saying it. When you've gone through a great loss and somebody goes, well, everything happens for a reason, that's not helpful, even if it's meant from a, a helpful place. So we're going to begin there um, next week. Let's pray together before uh, we sing. God, our source, our ground of being. We hear these words of Jesus to his own contemporaries. Don't take the broad path, the path of retribution and violence, the path of anger and hate, because it leads to destruction. Take the narrow path, the difficult path of enemy love, of doing the internal work, of transformation, of learning to love 
even the people who have somehow harmed us. But not, not being best friends with them, but learning to see them in a different way from a distance. May our internal capacity um, begin to expand as we walk through these next several weeks and we think about things that have been said to us maybe our entire lives, but things that have ultimately left us empty and hurting. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open for a different understanding of what may be going on behind all of these phrases. And this week, as we leave this place in a bit, as we go back into our lives in the world, um, we're hopeful that we will pay attention to all the little things going on inside of us and interactions, things we say, things we do. Make us aware of our lens. Make us aware of how our privilege, for some of us, affects that lens. And give us the courage to begin walking that narrow path with Jesus. We're grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen.